I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Victoria McKenzie about her historical novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Victoria is a fiction writer, poet and creative writing teacher living in Scotland. She's the winner of the Scottish Book Trust New Writer Award and the inaugural Emerging Writer Award from Moniac Moore. She was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize, as well as being awarded writing residences in Scotland, Finland and Australia. Having heard about Victoria's achievements, you'd assume getting an agent and a book deal would be easy. But in this episode, Victoria explains why it wasn't that straightforward. We also discuss how she was inspired by a woman from history who we know very little about, and how writing the novel she wanted to read allowed it to pour out of her in a matter of months. But first, here's Victoria with an excerpt from Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Christ first visited me some months after the birth of my eldest child, when I laboured for more hours than a single day can hold. I suffered much when I was with child, with vomiting and aches, and I was afraid it was punishment for my sins. I also desired to eat strange things, clods of mud and leather soles from boots. My husband wasn't pleased and told me not to eat these things. He said that if I didn't stop, he would have me imprisoned in my chamber and he would put shackles on my arms. At that I quite lost my reason. I ranted and screamed and tore at my clothes and hair. And I was indeed restrained as my husband had threatened and he took away my keys. Then my labour pains began and they were shackles themselves, pinning me down and causing me to roar. My neighbour, Agnes was at my side to aid me through the birth, but she tutted at my cries and spent more time gossiping outside my room than rubbing my belly with rose oil. When the child emerged, I thought he was the devil come to split me in two and toss my entrails to the dogs. I prayed to St Margaret to relieve me of the terror and let me die quickly, but she did not hear my pleas. When Agnes pulled the devil from between my damp thighs, he brought other demons who poured at me and hauled me about the bed all night and day. I named the baby John after his father, and Agnes cut the cord and swaddled him. The child was baptised at church two days later, 
but I could not leave my bed. The demons told me to forsake my faith and my husband and my friends, which I did, slandering them and recognising no goodness in them. They also told me to hurt myself, and I scratched at my arms and made them bleed, and I bit my own hand very hard. Agnes put honey on the wound and bound it, but the mark has stayed ever since. Hi Victoria, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain. Hi Chloe, it's really wonderful to be here with you to chat about it. So can you start by telling us what For Thy Great Pain is about? Sure, so it's um, set in the medieval period, um, around 1413, and it's about two medieval women who really lived, uh, Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. They both claimed to have visions of Jesus, um, but their lives really couldn't have been more different from one another. And that's one of the things that really fascinated me to juxtapose those two women. So Marjorie was a mother of 14 children. She was a merchant's wife. She travelled a great deal in her later life as well. And she spoke about her visions of Jesus incessantly. She would talk about them all the time on the streets um, to people that she met. And this was incredibly risky at that time because to claim that you had direct communication with God could lead to accusations of heresy. And at that time, they were starting to burn heretics um, at the stake. So her talking about her visions um, was at great personal risk. Julian, by contrast, we know almost nothing about her life apart from the fact that she wrote down her, um, her visions in a book now known as Revelations of Divine Love. We also know that she was an anchoress, which is the thing that really fascinated me about her. So she spent probably around 30 years living in a single room attached to the Church of St. Julian in Norwich. And she couldn't leave this room. She took a vow, a bit like becoming a nun, she took a vow to become an anchoress and she couldn't leave that cell or she would be excommunicated from the church. And she didn't, as far as we know, really tell people about her visions, probably because she was afraid of accusations of heresy. I started, first of all, thinking that I wanted to write a novel about Julian. And it was only when I was doing my research on Julian that I came across Marjorie Kemp, who I think is slightly less well known as a figure. And then I discovered that Marjorie Kemp had visited Julian um, to ask her advice about her visions. And that's when I realised I really wanted to write a novel about the two women um, and to culminate the novel in, in the meeting between them. Um, it's really fascinated to think how these women who had such different lives would have a conversation and what they might say to each other. That's really where I wanted to go with the novel. So what was it about those women in particular that kind of inspired you or interested you in the first place, really? Because you said you were kind of doing research about Julian anyway. So what was it about both of those women that made you want to write about them? Because they, I mean, they lived 600 years ago. What is it that you felt about their stories that needed to be told now? Well, they're significant in terms of the history of women's writing. So Julian's book, Revelations of Divine Love, is the first known book in the English language by a woman. There may have been earlier books, but we unfortunately don't have trace of them. Marjorie was probably illiterate, but she dictated her life story to a scribe in her later life. And that book, the book of Marjorie Kemp, is the first known autobiography in English, whether by a man or a woman. So they're both really important figures in the history of women's writing. But to be honest, as a writer, that wasn't the kind of juicy nugget that really wanted me to actually start writing and to start sort of imaginatively thinking about them. I 
I've always been quite obsessed with nuns. Um, <laughs> I really like reading about nuns. I've always been interested in people who live their life according to quite strongly held principles of some kind. It doesn't have to be religious. And what I initially thought Julia of Norwich was probably a nun. But once I started to read about her, I realised she may not have been because at that time, convents were really good at keeping records, so like great bureaucratic centres. And there's no record of a woman who may have been Julian of Norwich as a nun. So she was an anchoress and it was possible to go from being a lay person straight into being an anchoress rather than going via um, a convent. And the, the extremity of being an anchoress, it was just absolutely mesmerising to me. I, I had the idea for writing about her before lockdown. But during lockdown, it just felt like the perfect time, the sort of resonances of us all being stuck in our rooms, basically. And the way that for a lot of people, time was very different during lockdown. You know, you people weren't having to you know, commute to work or so on. You started to maybe think more about the days in a kind of more natural way paying more attention to the light or what the birds outside your window were doing and I I started to think about that in terms of Julian and how she would have perceived time mm. um, with, within her single room and um, so in a way I was kind of I mean all writers inevitably draw obviously on their own experiences and observations but it felt that lockdown was quite a resonant time to start writing about an anchoress but also what I wanted to do with Julian is, you know, her, her book is incredibly profound. It's, it's an important theological text. But I wanted to juxtapose that with something much more earthly. So I was you really wanted to kind of inhabit her bodily and think, OK, you've, you've got all these high ideas that you're going to be an anchoress in order to reflect on on these visions of Christ you've had. But what actually would it be like to be you know, a woman with a body? inside a single room and so I really wanted to contrast that kind of high theological thinking with what do you do with your slops and what you know what's it like in this sort of room would there be creatures so I was really keen on thinking about oh there'd be wood lice um, and earwigs and actually there's nothing very spiritual about being stuck in a single room um, where you can't exercise and you have to eat your food and you know you're still a, this functioning human body with all the same needs and desires that you've always had um, how on earth do you begin to sort of exist in that space and what does it do to you what does it do to your mind mm. um so for me that was the sort of imaginative nugget that really made me want to write about Julian I wanted to ask on a practical level then about writing Julian in this single room in the cell you really do look at nature and and the sort of the small detail in life but how did you kind of keep that as a dynamic vivid interesting way of life because we do spend quite a bit of time in this cell with Julian not all the book but when her world is so confined it's not like you can have her change her scenery or go, or go <laughs> somewhere so on a practical level how did you kind of approach that when you were writing it how did you kind of keep the scenes feeling like fresh and and interesting I think for me one of the things that the novel the novel in general does so well is to convey the mind thinking 
And so when I was writing about Julian in her cell, what I, I really wanted to do was to show her mind on the page. And so that would be the physical experience of the cell, those sensory details, the, you know, the smell of the river, the kind of the cold, um, you know, it was a north facing cell, they, they tried to make it as miserable for themselves as possible. I was thinking of the wind kind of coming over the East Anglian landscape and how, how freezing that would be. But I also wanted to inhabit her memories. So that was one way in which actually I, I had quite a lot of freedom. And, and I should say again, you know, we know almost nothing about Julian's life. So as a novelist, I had a completely blank canvas there to invent a past life for her, which was which was really freeing and actually made her easier to write than Marjorie. Whereas we know quite a bit about Marjorie's actual life from her from her memoir. So, yes, yeah, so just delving into her memories and it's kind of trying to keep that focus on the sensory, I think, was really important for me. And just then thinking about the way that her mind would work almost you know becoming feeling cooped up but then somehow breaking through that and and finding a kind of freedom in in her in her thinking and that was also one of the things about being an anchoress that I found fascinating it's really paradoxical but for a woman at that time and I was very sort of aware of of making it clear how little freedom and power women had at that time but for Julian who wanted time to reflect on her her visions being an anchoress actually gave her freedom because if you if you weren't an anchoress then chances are that you were a wife and mother with you know very little time to yourself and probably you were illiterate so I have her think about becoming a nun in order to get that freedom but then thinking that actually a nun's life was also very busy with singing and running the convent and all these sort of um, interruptions for singing and prayer they have this constant routine so it was kind of quite paradoxical but I felt that perhaps being an anchoress was a way that a woman could have freedom in those days because it gave her freedom to think and freedom to write and those are the kinds of freedoms that I want myself so so yeah so I found that really, really interesting um kind of contradictoriness to the anchoress life um mm. and although we in our modern times you know most people are quite horrified I'm quite horrified at the thought of an anchoress life at that time it was it was almost quite prestigious and if a church or a community had an anchoress it, it gave them a bit of bit of kudos and they valued their anchoress and she was actually very much part of the community because people would come to her window and ask for advice they would bring her food and other gifts and so it wasn't such an enclosed life as we might think it was actually very much still part of the community albeit in this very constrained space. Mm. You mentioned that the the writing of Julian was very freeing because you had this blank canvas to work with and it was quite exciting for you to kind of build this character almost from scratch but then you had to contend with writing her against a real life woman that you had quite a lot of information on. So how did you make sure that Julian was as real and authentic as Marjorie is, particularly in terms of her voice? Because I think I read a quote from you that you'd done some research where Marjorie's voice was very distinct and that's what had kind of attracted you to her story. So how did you make sure that Julian almost stood the test of being a real character against Marjorie? I suppose I I mean I used I do write poetry and I wanted to 
make Julian's language quite different. So she's much more metaphorical. She also is much more attuned to the world around her. Marjorie hardly ever observes anything about her. You know, she's certainly not thinking about what the birds are doing or what have you. So I could kind of give free reign to like the lyric poet in me when I wrote Julian. And her voice does come through in her in her book and it's very serene. So I kind of tried to channel that aspect of it as well. And that was one of the things I had so much fun writing this book. What's one of the things I really enjoyed was juxtaposing that kind of serene, observant voice of, of Julian that uses language in quite a heightened way. And then just doing these hard cuts to Marjorie, who's just going off on one and is, uh, you know, a hot mess. She's desperate, she's delusional she's kind of ranting to herself um, and it was just so it was just so much fun to to play around with those cuts and to, to think about ways that I could use those juxtapositions um, sometimes to slightly comic effect other times to more profound effect to kind of highlight perhaps just what a state Marjorie's in so so that was something that was very enjoyable for me. Yeah I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about those decisions you made in terms of form because your novel is quite a slim book and it's told in kind of a fragmentary way. Um, and then when we finally get to the meeting between Marjorie and Julian, their conversation turns into a, a script almost. So can you talk us through those decisions that you made in terms of, did that kind of come quite naturally? Did you have it in mind how you wanted to um, portray this on the page? Yeah, so I looked back at my first draft yesterday because I was thinking, at what stage did I decide on those formal decisions and it's there from the very beginning and I feel like I didn't think about it I didn't make a conscious decision it's just how it started to come out um, with these alternating voices and then this this kind of script-like format at the end and I think what I wanted with the ending was I wanted to give their voices priority I didn't want um I didn't want to kind of have any scene setting or I didn't want to have a narrator there interfering. I just I just wanted to hear these women and I was imagining in my head, you know, they couldn't see each other. They're just there. I was sort of almost seeing it like a, a spotlit stage with this window between them with the curtain drawn, just two women and just their voices kind of coming out of the dark at you almost um, and thinking, that that's how they would have experienced each other because they didn't see each other. And then so they just give all the focus in terms of what did they sound like to each other? What were they reading between the lines about each other? And obviously Julian is much more perceptive than Marjorie. So immediately Julian is tuning into this idea that Marjorie is all bluster, but beneath that there's loneliness, there's vulnerability. Whereas Marjorie is she's kind of at a desperate stage in her life where she feels very rejected by those around her and she's really yearning for someone to kind of reach out and comfort her but has to be through words um, because she can't see Julian. So yeah I, I guess I, I was just sort of envisioning this this spotlit moment where there was nothing but words and um, the words that they were speaking to each other. Yeah, I think it works really well because also it stands out in the text as something different. You can tell it's such a pivotal moment because 
you've just got the the conversation there on the page in front of you um another thing I wanted to ask you about really was your research process because your stumbling onto Marjorie was um kind of accidental um but I wondered how the research worked in terms of did you do the majority of your research before you started writing or was it a case of you did some before and then you kind of went back and did some more while you were writing what's your kind of practical the practical way you went about it the latter very much so a a bit before and then as I was going along I think part of the problem I've had with the first novel that I wrote Brantwood which is also about a real person about John Ruskin um is that I did so much research to start with that making that work as an art form has been much tougher plus there's a lot more research as possible with Ruskin so I didn't want to do that with with For Thy Great Pain I wanted to give myself more creative freedom and be less high bound by the research and by thinking about oh well this is what really happened and it happened in this order so I so I, I read I read their books and I did research into the status of and lives of medieval women and I, I researched anchoresses um, and I really enjoy social history. So thinking about the kinds of things they ate and wore and what they did for pleasure, um, that kind of stuff. So that was really fun. But then I would I would just keep reading at the same time as writing, which which is sort of advice that as a creative writing teacher, I'd never give to a student. Um, <laughs> always say, keep your writing and your researching separate I don't know if that's good advice for me I need it to feel like a very messy organic process I don't like to to be too I don't like to think too clearly when I'm doing it I like it to be messy and to just kind of chase things down and see where things are going and enjoy the serendipity of finding out oh um you know they they ate this interesting snack called peas cod so I'm going to put that in you know today in the bit that I'm writing now just because I happen to have come across it um and 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 that was really fun and so I didn't feel bogged down by my research and obviously there were things that I then checked once I had a a sort of fairly full draft um so things were really interesting to me like initially I had Julian knitting but then I discovered that they didn't knit in England at that point um it had probably been invented in China but it hadn't reached England they didn't knit till later so things like that so I would change that you know to embroidery and so on so I tried not to put anything in that I knew was wrong Mm. um but I yeah I I kind of enjoyed not weighing myself down with reams and reams of research for it I did a history uh, fiction writing course recently and one of the questions that I asked the uh, author running the course was is there ever a point where you feel confident when you're when you're writing historical fiction that you know enough to not keep going back and looking things up because um, I'm writing some historical fiction at the moment and I'll write a paragraph and then I think right I need my character to eat lunch or eat dinner and then I start to think but I don't know what they eat and then that kind of gets me stuck are you able to just write whatever and, and carry on? Or do you then have to pause and go and look something up? I think I prefer to plough on. But what I might do is I might write, um, you know, 
they ate um, minced collops and put it in square brackets and kind of made a note to myself that, you know, check, they ate minced collops in 15th century. Um, and then I just keep writing. So I wouldn't let it hold me back. And I try not to, to kind of break off at that point, just in order to go down like some kind of rabbit hole of fun food research. Because <laughs> I know that would then like suck away an afternoon. And and I, you know, it is annoying when there are, when there are mistakes. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I would try to, to check things. Um, and I, I'm not a medievalist. I do... <laughs> I do feel quite fraudulent at times. <laughs> I've like blundered into the medieval period with my short book. Um, but I, I really, I just found the period absolutely fascinating and one that really resonated for me. It was such a, such a time of great kind of, it's very, um, what's the word, like tangible. Everything felt very tangible. It felt a very real place that you could go and, and touch things and smell things and see things and so I, I really enjoyed thinking about oh, what kind of clothes I really enjoyed doing the kind of clothes research or the kind of robes and stockings and things um, and you know lots of that didn't make it in and that's always the way with research um, I always really enjoy the food research as well also I think this period I'm noticing a few books occurring being published now um, about the medieval period like um yeah, Lauren Groff's Matrix and so on and it's a time that has resonance for us not just with obviously with the plague and the kind of pandemic that we're experiencing um, but also huge social unrest wars that are distant going on and on and on and, and sort of sucking away government money um, and just yeah it just felt like there were some like really interesting parallels and to be honest, 600 years, it just didn't feel like a big gap of time to me. It felt like, it almost felt more relatable to me than say like, you know, the Georgian period of Jane Austen, say, I'm sorry, Regency period. Um, it, yeah, it's just something about the medieval period felt like a place I felt at home. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your writing journey to date, because I know it's been um, at times a long one, a slow one. Um, but on paper, your kind of journey to getting a book deal might seem fairly quick because I've read an interview with you where you said the novel took you less than a year to write. You sent it off to an agent and they offered you representation within days of you um, emailing them. And but this isn't, you know, this isn't the beginning of your writing journey. It's been ongoing. And as you mentioned, you've written another book before this. So I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about how it all started for you and whether you've always wanted to write a novel. What, what has it been like for you in terms of your writing journey? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, sure. No, it's been long and slow. Um, <laughs> and this last couple of years has, has been incredible, but absolutely atypical of my, of my writing journey. Um, so I started uh, creative writing when I was 19. I did my first evening class and I always thought I'd be a poet. So um, I did poetry evening classes. And uh, then in my late 20s, I moved to Scotland originally from Brighton um, to do the Masters in Creative Writing at St Andrews. And again, it was exclusively focused on poetry. I then did an academic PhD looking at contemporary poetry and um, science. And it was only during my PhD that I started to think about writing short fiction. I think I was starting to get sick of poetry at that point. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I started writing short stories, uh, sending them off. I had um, some nice successes with um, a few competitions and then magazines and so on. Absolutely no thoughts of writing a novel until my mid-30s. I don't know why. Maybe just the size of it was daunting. I didn't have an idea. But yeah, when, once I'd finished my PhD, I started to think about writing this novel about John Ruskin the Victorian art historian. Um, it wasn't actually his art history that intrigued me so much as um, some of the other things he worked on. So he's this, he's really fundamental for um, green movement and socialism, founders of the modern Labour Party. All, all of these kinds of ideas can be found in Ruskin's work. And that those were the things that really interested me about him. So I, I started writing Brantwood, as I called it, which is the name of his house in the Lake District. And it went it went really well, to be honest, to start with. Um, I, I got the Emerging Writer Residency at Cove Park in Scotland, um, which was a month's funded residency to start writing it. Um, I then won the Emerging Writer Award from Moniatmore Creative Writing Centre up in the Highlands um, for the first part of the novel. I got significant Creative Scotland funding to finish it. I got shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish uh, Fiction Prize. So I was thinking, wow, you know, this, this novel's going to get published. This is going really well. People like my book. This is so exciting. And then I started to send it out to agents and my dreams all crumbled. <laughs> <laughs> so I did have a few requests for full manuscripts which was wonderful. I had a couple of agents who were keen, 
but not quite keen enough. And then after that, it all went very quiet. I was maybe sending it out for um, for about a year and feeling very sorry for myself. <laughs> it was a very, very painful time. Um, I'd been working on the novel for three or four years at that point. I felt that it was finished. I was you know, felt like I had all these great things in my query letter um, to agents, you know, this prize, that prize. And and it simply didn't happen. And so that was that was difficult. And it's just, you know, rejection I'm, I'm used to in terms of sending out short stories and poems. And that's fine. You dust it down, you redraft it, you send it out again. But with this novel, it's like, well, now, now what do I do with it? You know, I put so much work into it. And so I was just, I was just kind of heartbroken. Actually, I was really, really sad about Brantwood for a while. And then, it, then it was locked down, and I'd had this idea of actually of Norwich knocking around in my head for a little while. So, um, so I decided, you know, I didn't have a social life. It was locked down, <laughs> so I had extra time. Um, so I, I, I wrote the novel, and it came out quite quickly um, onto the page. Um, it took me about nine months, I think. I mean, I redrafted it a lot. Um, about 15 times I absolutely love redrafting I love editing I love craft you know I spent most of my 20s just reading books about being a writer and craft um so yeah so so but it came out quickly it was just one of those mysterious things and then yeah I sent it to my agent he got back to me on the same day with a full manuscript request and then the next day he offered me representation and uh, and you can just imagine the crying and screaming and ecstasy in this house. I mean, especially I was... because you've been waiting so long for it. And mm. I think that you said your your query letter is like the dream query letter. So then to get that far and have all these awards and shortlistings and then to still have, you know, closed doors and be told no, to then finally get that representation must have been incredible. It was, yeah, I will never forget that day. Um, my husband was teaching on Zoom and I was just prowling outside his room waiting for him to finish so that I could just like scream at him, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it was so wonderful and probably far more wonderful than if I'd got representation like, you know, a couple of years earlier. Because mm. as you say, I'd just been, I'd been so disappointed and and sad about it and then to suddenly cross that line and it does feel like you know you kind of get over a hurdle it's wonderful to be on the other side was there a point then where you even felt like giving up because I know you did take yes. a break I know you took a break writing your first novel um because you've been writing on and off since 2014 and I guess there's a point where you think well this isn't working and I need to do something else so had you reached a point then of kind of giving up I'd never actually given up but I'd certainly thought about it and I think because Brantwood did well initially in the writing process I thought I thought I was onto a sure thing and then once those doors wouldn't open at the end it started to occur to me that actually getting published wasn't guaranteed I'd kind of always thought if you kept trying um, if you kept trying to get better as a writer, if you kept working at it, if you didn't give up, then it would happen. And I did reach a point where actually I started to doubt that in myself and think maybe there are people who write great books and they never get published. 
and maybe my book isn't great <laughs> anyway and so that's why it's not going to get published um so yeah I definitely had dark nights of the soul where I thought I thought writing was was my thing and I knew I'd probably never stop doing it for pleasure because it's too much a part of who I am you know I read an interview with Lucy Caldwell, the Northern Irish writer, re recently, and she said, if she's not writing, she doesn't feel truly alive. And I can really identify with that feeling. And it doesn't mean, you know, literally doing the writing, but just generally being in that zone where you're getting ideas and, and it's part of part of your sort of day-to-day -day life, just having your notebook in your bag or whatever. Mm -hmm. Writing is, is who I am. But yeah, I, I, did, I did start to think that perhaps I, I wasn't going to make it as a published writer. Um, yeah. and that's very hard so you took this break and then started writing for thy great pain what was it about that kind of break and that that space away from your other book that helped you kind of creatively because this other book almost poured out of you was it do you think simply the fact you were doing it for fun and your own enjoyment and you were leaving behind almost the baggage from your other book that had done so well in all these prizes but then hadn't got you what you wanted yeah I think it was I I consciously decided to write a book that was the book I wanted to read that had no consideration of the industry or the market you know I was not trying to be the next blah 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 I was not thinking about oh how will I pitch this to anyone um who is it like I absolutely forgot about all of that and just thought I'm going to write myself the book I want to read about Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp and I'm going to write it in a in a strange way that is the way I think it should be told I'm going to sort of use all of these different techniques from kind of the strange presentation to the script like stuff to this you know this slightly odd grammar to it because I kind of wanted a hint at that the fact that they speak middle English even though it's it's written in modern English so there's some slightly odd slightly odd rhythm to it at times as well as vocabulary like sort of curtle and and peas cards and things see I I, I wasn't thinking oh, how, how will this be marketed? How will this be pitched? I was just thinking, what would I really enjoy reading myself? And yeah, it was so freeing and it was so fun. And I was thinking, once I'd finished it, I was thinking, okay, well, probably I'm going to send it out to some small publishers that you don't need an agent for. And, and that would be just wonderful to, to get picked up by a small press. Um, but obviously there was something in me that still had that ambition because I did still send it out to agents. Um, <laughs> very small numbers. Um, my agent, Sam at RCW, was in the first batch I sent to, very small number. Um, and and then, yeah, it just, it was out of my hands all of a sudden. And it was incredible. Um, but I, yeah, I do think there's really something to be said for not thinking about the industry when you're writing. And I suspect that's what makes it the second book hard for a lot of writers, because mm. suddenly they are in the public domain as a writer. They have these people, agents, editors and so on that they're engaging with. And it's hard to become utterly self-conscious again. Very hard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll talk about it at the end, but you've already got the second book in the bag. So that kind of eases <laughs> you a little bit. It, it kind of does. So, yeah, <laughs> I have the two book deal in Bloomsbury and the second book is Brantwood, the, the Ruskin one, which you can imagine what a 
a kind of balm to my soul it is but it's not in the bag in as much as I'm still writing it after all these years but <laughs> having <laughs> having finished for thy great pain and had a big long gap from it it's been um strange but satisfying to come back to it and to be able to think okay I understand why the book wasn't picked up I can see what's wrong with it and it's it's you know I'm working on it at the moment I'll be working on it today it's really satisfying to basically get stuck into it again and do a great big rewrite and to think okay now I know now how to make this book better I can I can see its problems I can see how it's bogged down in research um I can see I'm too in love with John Ruskin um <laughs> <laughs> I you know I I need to in, inject more tension into it there are all these different things that I can see now and it's it's really a lot of fun to, to go back into it and, and make it better while you're talking about craft, I wondered whether you could share with us what for you you think is the most challenging part of writing and how you've tried to overcome that. Well, that's such a difficult question. I know um, you love the editing, so not the editing part, perhaps. Well, even though I love it, it is hard. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, what's, what's the meaning of a novel? And I think for me how a novel works is it's the connections between every word every image every metaphor the kind of the rhythm of it the sound of it the meaning of the novel is its whole thing and it's really hard holding that in your head mm. when you've got a big project and I think you know, writing for thy great pain, it's it's a quite a slim novel. It's only around 33,000 words. And even that length, it's, you know, I need to, I basically, I, I give my printer hell. I have to print things out so much. I can't simply hold the novel in my head and I can't just have it on the screen. I need to see it's kind of physical shape all the time. I need everything spread out around me. So I, I think, yeah, that, that to me, because a reader, you know, a reader will often, a lot of people have said they've read my novel in one gulp. Um, a reader will often read a novel just over a few days. And so the reader does get to hold it in their head. Um, whereas if you've been working for years and years, you just get fixated on these small parts. Um, and it's it's difficult to kind of track tension and track the rhythm of your novel as a whole. So I think that's that's one of the really big challenges when you're working long form. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's maybe that was one of the things at the start that put you off from writing a novel, because it certainly was for me. I thought there's absolutely no way I can write a novel. It's just too much work and it's too long. Um, so maybe that was the thing that put you off at the beginning. Yeah. And also, I just love that buzz when you finish something. Um, so if it's a short story, you know, even if you spend a couple of months on it, you get that lovely high of, of completing it. Whereas with a novel, you have to like postpone that pleasure for years. <laughs> so finally, we've spoken about it quite a bit already, but can you tell us a little bit more about your second novel? And maybe have you had any ideas for future novels? What is next for you? So, yeah, so the big thing is finishing Brantwood. Um, so it's... <sighs> It's a funny one because John Ruskin is someone who 
most people have heard of, maybe know a few things about. He's featured in popular culture a little bit recently, especially in films, and he gets such a bad press. Um, whereas my book is is definitely a broadly sympathetic portrait of Ruskin. It's um, it only covers a few years in his life. It's his his middle age and his late fifties. All of the art history that makes him a famous name in that period is in the past. It's over. Um, his his annulled marriage, which was sort of huge speculation of, of gossip at the time and since, is is way in the past. Um, that was um, that was in his thirties, um, and he he has really changed and focused his energies on thinking about society and thinking about inequality in society, thinking about the effect of industrialization on people's lives, um, the effect of industrial pollution on cities, on rivers. Um, and he started to um, take these steps into what we would probably call socialism, although he didn't like the word. So he's thinking about buying up green space for people to have access to. And this eventually actually becomes the beginnings of the National Trust. It's his followers that set up the National Trust. He's investing in the beginnings of what will be the first social housing in London. He's setting up um, one of the first museums um, with artworks that everyone can have access to, because at that time, most artwork was tied up in private collections and couldn't be accessed by the average person. Um, so he's got all of these kind of grand plans and he, he wants people to donate money so that he can kind of roll them out on a nationwide scale. And all that he is facing from his peers, from the press, is mockery, closed doors. People think he's a fool, that he should stop meddling in politics, that he should get back to the pretty paintings. Um, and so he's incredibly frustrated. And at the same time, in his personal life, he's experiencing a huge grief when a woman that he's very much in love with dies very young of what would now probably be called anorexia. So this this triggers um, together with his kind of like feeling so um, held back in his plans together with this grief. He, he begins a period of great mental instability and um, that that's kind of um, what my novel explores, how this man who has such great public success begins to experience this huge inner darkness. And I, I only cover a few years but at the end of Ruskin's life, which isn't covered in the novel, he dies um, after about 10 years of being in an almost um, this terrible state where he never speaks. For about 10 years, he doesn't write. He has this complete mental breakdown. And it's, it's just extraordinary that this man who was so prolific, he wrote more than 200 books and pamphlets, becomes someone utterly silent, utterly uncommunicative. It's just inc incredibly sad and incredibly frustrating. And yet when you go then to the 20th century, you see how many of his ideas have subsequently been picked up, you know, with the National Trust, with social housing, with the forming of the Labour Party, with the environmental movement, even things like the big draw um, are, are inspired by Ruskin, who, who was um, a lecturer at working men's colleges, teaching people to draw and to appreciate art. And so there's, you know, there's always, I always feel this great frustration and sadness when someone dies not knowing how important their ideas are, what huge impact they'll have on society. So um, you can tell I'm completely in love with Ruskin. So. <laughs>
<laughs> so yeah so that's that's kind of that's you know and he is he's a deeply flawed man I'm not um wanting to gloss over the fact that you know he wasn't a great feminist he wasn't a great husband but I still I still think he's worth thinking about and remembering for for his legacy mm, well I'm really thrilled that this book is finally gonna get published and be out into the world like it deserves Victoria thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today Thank you, Chloe. It's been absolutely brilliant to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Victoria Mackenzie talking about her historical novel, For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Mm -hmm.